Welcome to the Catch the Fire Church podcast. We're so glad you're joining us, and we hope you're encouraged by this message. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Duncan, Kate, Jess, Aaron, honestly, just such a joy and a privilege. I so appreciate you having me here. The, um, you know, when you plant a church, you suddenly realize that when people invite you into their communities, it is an act of incredible trust. Because you realize how precious what you're building is. And, and so I, I don't take lightly the fact that you trusted me enough to have me here. And I've loved being here. Thank you. I feel like I'm among family. Um, this church is led by beautiful leaders. And um, I know that you know that. But I just want to commend them to you that your leaders are remarkable And I've loved getting time with them. I said in the first service, and I think I said over the weekend, that about 20 years ago, I was in a room where Duncan was ministering. Jesus met me and really marked my life. So I am forever grateful for the life of Duncan Smith. We're going to jump straight into the book of Esther together. Before I do that, actually, I, uh, I just want to say to you guys, if you haven't met the powerhouse women who are with me, Stephanie and Sophia, it has been my joy and privilege to travel with them. They are prophetic voices. And uh, uh, I just want to say, sometimes we think that the people up on stage uh, somehow are, the, are a gift in and of themselves, which I'm not downplaying that, but I'm saying God uses us in community. He puts pace setters next to us in community. It is the joy of being a body together. And Steph and Sophie, I'm so grateful for you both. We're going to allow God to reintroduce himself to us today. I love the book of Esther. If you've not read it recently, I want to encourage you to read it. Uh, Partly I love the book because I come from the country of Iran, so I feel close to home as I read this book set in the context of the empire of Persia. I love the book because it's unusual. It never explicitly mentions God. And yet God is all over the story. And so what I'm going to do, we're going to preach from the whole story today. Um, and for purposes of time, I'm not going to read the text. I'm going to tell you the story. And then we'll jump in to a few treasures to pull out together. I believe God wants to meet with us powerfully. So the story in the book of Esther starts out with the most powerful man on the planet at the time. His name was King Ahasuerus. He was the king of Persia. And he's so powerful, he is so full of his own glory, of his own might, that he decides as a show of that, to display it to the world, that he will throw an almighty party. So for six months, he throws a feast for all of his governors, for all of his officials. They eat, they drink, the wine is flowing throughout that time. The food is ever coming. They party together for six months. I want you to imagine if the American government did that. We are so powerful. We are so in control. We have everything. to. We don't even need to work. Everything that we put in place is working out in perfection. That's what Ahasuerus is doing. He's stating through the party that he is in control. 
And after six months, he decides as a show of uh, beautiful favor to his people that he will open up the gates of the city. And for one week, the whole city is invited to celebrate with him. And they eat and drink. And at the culmination of six months and one week of eating and drinking, the pinnacle moment for him, he calls for his queen Vashti, a woman great in beauty, to come and parade herself in front of him and his officials. And unsurprisingly, Vashti doesn't love the idea of of doing that in front of a group of drunken men. And she does the unthinkable, literally, in that culture. No one would have thought to do this. Not if they valued their lives anyway. She says no publicly to the king. It is a crazy crazy moment, a moment of humiliating this king who has been making a great display of his power. And so the king gathers his officials and they come together to talk about the problem of Vashti. And his officials say to him, oh king, this this is actually a bigger problem than just a queen defying a king, publicly humiliating you. Uh, But now the problem is not only uh, has the queen defied you, but the women in the empire will see that as an example and think that they are able to defy their husbands. And clearly no one can live in a society like that. And so they come together and they talk about it and they decide that they're going to depose Vashti. They're going to remove her from the position as queen in the kingdom. And they're going to find a new queen, one who the king can suitably control. This is where Esther enters the story. She's a beautiful virgin and the plan is that they are going to bring, it's not a sweet story. It's actually a horrific one if you think about it. They're going to forcibly remove beautiful virgins from their families, bring them to the palace to train them so that the king can see them and then decide who he likes the most. Enter Esther, who happens to be a beautiful virgin in the empire. Now Esther, she's an orphan. She's been raised by her cousin Mordecai and she's a Jew. All of those things actually come against her. In that society, being an orphan meant that you were nothing because the family line that you came from, who your father was, defined your value. The fact that she doesn't have a father tells you she has no value. That's how ancient times value worked. The fact that she's a Jew meant that she was a nobody. Jews were at the bottom of the food chain in the Persian Empire. And so, in fact, Mordecai says to Esther when she's taken by the palace guards, he tells her, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. Keep that part of yourself hidden. And so Esther goes into this time of training. As it turns out, over the course of time, she earns so much favor that she, in a crazy turn of events, becomes the new queen of Persia. This is where the story gets interesting. Enter Haman, a man who was one of the king's closest officials. He's a man who hates the Jews and he comes up with a plan to destroy the Jewish people, manages to get the king to sign off on it so that the Jewish people will literally be eradicated. Esther's cousin Mordecai hears about the plan, goes to Esther at the palace and starts pleading with her to do something, to go to the king, to change and reverse what's happening. And Esther says to him, I can't do it. 
I have no power. Like, didn't you see what happened to Vashti when she thought for herself? You might see me as a queen. The reality is I'm a nobody and I can't do anything. And in that moment, Mordecai begins to speak words to her. We'll look at it in a moment that instill courage into her. So whereas just a few moments ago, she was saying no, suddenly she has enough courage to say yes. And she gets Mordecai's people to fast and pray. She gets her people to fast and pray. And after three days, she goes to the king to plead for her people. Now, the thing is, in ancient times, unless the king had summoned you, the penalty was death if he did not want to see you. So what she's doing isn't just, okay, this is a low stakes thing. The reality is she knows this could cost her her life. But she goes to the king and in a miraculous moment, rather than... uh, calling for her execution, for the audacity for her to show up to him, the king extends mercy and favor to her and says, Esther, what can I do for you? And Esther, being a wise woman, understands the king's love language, so she invites him to a party. And so that night, she throws a party for the king and for Haman. And at that party, the king says, okay, we're here. Esther, what can I do for you? And Esther invites him to another party. And at the second party, the king asks again, okay, come on now. What's this all about? What can I do for you? She tells the king that she's a Jew and she pleads for the life of her people. She exposes Haman's plot for what it is. And in this crazy, unbelievable, except it's historical fact moment, this nobody, this woman, this piece of property changes the course of a nation as the king hears her words, as the Jewish people are spared and Haman is executed. It is remarkable. It's something that you could write as a fairy tale or just put in that category. But the reality is it's historical fact. And I want to pull from this story. There are, there are little whispers of who God is all throughout this story. Little whispers to us as the people of God to understand that this story is pointing to a beautiful king and a beautiful kingdom and inviting us as his people to believe him for the impossible, to believe him to use us for the impossible, no matter where we've come from or what our backgrounds happen to be. And so in this story, I believe firstly that we're invited to meet the one who is creator, not just cleaner. Let me explain this. When Esther is taken from her home and she is given a completely new position as queen, she might not understand it, but in reality, what happens to her in that moment is that her position completely changes. Now, this is a very small analogy of what actually happens to you and me as we encounter Jesus and get swallowed up into a royal kingdom. The thing is, what happens to Esther isn't that she just gets cleaned up, but she's still just that nobody. No, no, she is now a queen. She now has a position. She now has authority, whether she realizes it or not. The thing about you, when you encountered Jesus, when you made the decision to follow him, when you invited his life to swallow up your life, you didn't just become the same person just cleaned up a little bit, but actually the Bible tells us that in encountering Jesus, you have been transformed. The old has gone, the new has come. You are now a brand new creation. Right, Some of us believe that the gospel is simply a story about how we get cleaned up. 
That the gospel is simply uh, a way of behavior modification. That the gospel is really like a ginormous washing machine and dryer system across and a resurrection where what happens is you go into the wash as a dirty version of yourself. You go through the first cycle, you go through the dryer and you come out the same person but a clean version of yourself. We act sometimes like the blood of Jesus Christ is not transformative, it's just cleaning. It's like a big bottle of shout that just gets sprayed on your stains, grubby, immoral you, and then you go through the wash and you come out clean. The thing about this is if you believe that, you will believe that it is possible to become unclean again. But that's an unbiblical paradigm. The gospel doesn't clean you. It makes you come alive. The cross and an empty tomb don't take dirty people and make them clean. They take dead people and make them live. It's a completely different perspective. In 2 Corinthians 5, the verse that I quoted, anyone who is in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. He is now a brand new creation. That same chapter says a little bit later on, Jesus who knew no sin, became the substance of sin so that you and I would become the substance of righteousness. It means that when you encounter Jesus, every cell of your being changes in substance. You are not the same person. When you encountered him, the old you, the grubby you, the immoral you, the broken you died. He was crucified with Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says, crucified with Jesus Christ on the cross. You are now dead and buried. The person who sits here, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've been raised to life a brand new you. You are not the same old person. There is supernatural DNA in every cell of your body. The substance of righteousness has been taken over all of your body. You are not your old self. Why does this matter? Why does it matter? It matters because we behave out of who we believe we are. Modern psychologists will tell us, you don't even have to be a Christian to know this, that people do not behave primarily out of their desires, they behave primarily out of their understanding of who they are. Christians, if you are struggling in cycles of sin that you cannot break free from, I want to say something to you. The best way to overcome sin cycles in your life is not to gather around with other Christians, invite them to come and speak to you about your sin, pray together about your sin. The reality you are most aware of is the reality you will reflect. You do not want to gather accountability groups to bring enough guilt and shame to you so that that week you will be afraid of doing that sin because you know that you will be ashamed to tell everybody what you actually did. So hopefully that fear and shame will control your behavior enough so that next time you get together you can high five each other and say you were set free you haven't been set free your heart is still bound you're just controlling it with enough guilt and shame not to do the thing that your heart desires that is not a way to overcome sin 
The way to overcome sin, and I say this not theoretically, I say this from personal experience and many years of pastoring now. The way to overcome sin is not for you to focus on the sin, is to gather people with you, to read the Bible together, to invite Holy Spirit to show you, to renew your thinking, not around your sinfulness, but around your new identity, around your new creation, around yourselves being the very substance of Christ. Because if we understand that we are brand new, if we understand that our substance have changed, if we understand that our nature is now different, we will walk in the ways of a new identity. We will walk in the ways of the kingdom of heaven. We will walk in the light, not in the darkness. It is more natural for you, believer, not to sin than to sin. That is truth. It is because many of us have not allowed the renewing of our thinking about who we are, that we still struggle with things that Jesus has in fact freed us from. He is not just a cleaner. He is a creator. The enemy is heavily invested in getting you to dig up your dead self from the grave, smelly and rotting, and pretend that that is who you are. It is not true. Julian often points out that in the Bible, necromancy, talking to dead people, is a sin. Don't talk to your dead self. You are a new creation. Because he is not simply a really good cleaner. He invents completely new people. He is creator, not cleaner. We're invited to meet the one who defies our origins. In this story, we have Esther who has believed everything her culture has told her. See, ancient culture saw women as virtually having no value. Women were akin to property. Women belonged to the male figure in their families. They really were treated as belongings. They had no rights in and of themselves. No one anticipated anything significant of a woman. Esther had believed her whole life. She'd swallowed everything her culture had told her about how small she is, how insignificant she is. Oh, you're a Jew. Well, Jews are even worse than anybody else. Oh, you're an orphan. That really means you're nothing, right? That is everything in her history informed that understanding in her. But Jesus defies our origins. He picks up people who others would say are hopeless cases. And he shapes and changes us into people who change the world. Because Jesus is not bound to where you came from. He is redefining your history, not based on your family genetics, but based on his kingdom DNA. There is something radically different about you because your family line, hear this, your family line as a believer is not primarily attached to your parents now. 
It is primarily attached to Jesus Christ. There is a cutting off of an umbilical cord from your family, your earthly family, and an attaching of that cord to Jesus. That means that the DNA of Katya Adams standing before you is not primarily attached to Lazarus and Margaret Yegnazar, who are my earthly parents. In fact, the moment I received Jesus Christ, the moment I allowed his life to swallow up my life, everything about my genetics shifted to be attached to the one I come from, who is Jesus Christ, my Lord, right? So he defies your origins, whatever your family background. And I'm not belittling pain that we may have walked through. You might have come from a fantastic family or you might have come from an incredibly broken home. I'm not belittling the pain. I'm just saying your past no longer defines you because we serve a God who defies our origins. You may have come from somewhere incredibly broken. You may have come from somewhere insignificant. You may have been told your whole life that you will amount to nothing and you will do nothing interesting, significant, important. It is a lie because if you are in Christ, you're a son or a daughter of a king. The very kingdom resides in you. You are an open gateway of heaven breaking into earth wherever you are, whatever you do. The resource of the kingdom of heaven is backing you. He defies your origins. In this story, Mordecai is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Mordecai speaks to Esther words that change her perspective from I can't to maybe I can. He says to her, Esther, maybe you were born for such a time as this. Such a simple phrase. And yet what it's communicating to her is what if your story is more than what you think it is? What if there is a narrative that is beyond the narrative that you've been told? What if the definitions that have been put on you, there is something higher, something more true of you than you've ever believed? And in that moment, courage is poured in her to step into what is tangibly impossible. Mordecai is the picture of Holy Spirit in our lives. We live in times where many Christians hold Holy Spirit at arm's length because we have given the Holy Spirit an improper reputation in the church by our incorrect understanding of scripture. Many believers see the Holy Spirit as some kind of um, nitpicking control monitor of heaven. Like he's got his clipboard and he's got his pencil in his ear and he's running around. He's incredibly busy, don't you know, because he's running around millions of believers all over the world. And his only job is to make sure that when they step out of line, he's there to point it out to them. We behave like this and we talk about it, that I was at work, I was doing this, I said a lie. Oh, bam, Holy Spirit convicted me of that lie. It's like he only shows up to make you feel bad. That's a lie. We're not reading our Bibles accurately. In the Gospel of John, chapter 16, Jesus says, Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of their sin, not the believer. 
The Holy Spirit is not convicting you of your sinfulness. Read Galatians 4. Read Romans 8. Holy Spirit is not running around you making sure that he tells you when you're sinful. Holy Spirit is speaking to you of your right standing before God. He is speaking to you of the substance of righteousness that is now in you. He is speaking to you of your new identity. He is convicting you of your sonship. That's what it says. Romans 8. He, the very spirit of adoption, is speaking to you day in, day out. He is leading you towards your Abba Father. Why? Because that is what he does to the believer. Don't hold him at arm's length. We need the empowering voice of the Spirit to remind us of who we are. Because it's his voice that pours courage in us in order to step into our destiny. If you silence his voice from your life, you will lack the courage and the conviction that you need to walk into the impossible that you were made for. Encourage his voice, invite his voice, tune in to his voice. The thing about the word of God is that it's not just wishful thinking, but it contains in and of itself the power for what it says. See, when Jesus goes to the blind man and he says, see, power is released in that moment for the blind man to see. When Jesus says to the lame man, walk, power is released in that moment for the lame man to get up and walk. When Jesus says to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. It's not a word of condemnation, last minute judgment. So she doesn't think that she's got off scot-free. No, no, no. He is releasing power in that moment so that she can literally go and sin no more. He is freeing her from the shackle of sin. When Peter is in the boat and Jesus is walking on the waves, what does Peter say? Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. Why? Because even the disciples understood that when Jesus says a word, the power is released in that word to accomplish the very thing he demands. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. And it's when Jesus says, come, that power is released for Peter to get up out of a boat and start walking on some waves. I want to tell you, when Jesus releases a word over you, he is not just hoping that it will come to pass, but as he speaks that word over you, he is releasing the very power to accomplish the thing that he demands. When he says over you, I have made you to be an evangelist to the nations, he is not saying, I really hope that it might be true if you're sinless enough. No, he is saying, I'm releasing power over you to accomplish the very word that I release. When he tells you to plant a church, he's not saying maybe one day I hope so. He's saying power is released for you to do it. His words contain the power for the transformation that is required. He defies our origins. Esther invites us to meet the one who is our majority. When we read these stories, I I really love to imagine myself in the story. Because if not, we gloss over all the scary parts. We read with hindsight in mind. It sanitizes the story. But when we do that, we misunderstand what faith adventures look like. And then when we're in our own story and it gets scary or terrifying, we think something's gone wrong. It's because we've not been paying attention to the fine print all along. 
When Esther went to the king, she knew what she was doing could have the penalty of death. She's walking. I want you to imagine, is it a hallway? Is it an entryway? Where is she walking? As she walks to the king, this lone woman, everything is on her shoulders seemingly. And she's going to a room with the king and his male officials. I want to tell you as a woman today, it is still sometimes terrifying to enter rooms of men, much more so for a woman in the ancient Middle East walking towards a king as she defies every custom that they have. Do you not think that in that moment, Esther was the subject of some significant warfare from the enemy as he reminded her how vulnerable she was? Do you not think that as she walked down that hallway towards that throne room, the enemy was whispering into her mind, you are one woman, you are in the minority, turn around. Do you not think that the enemy was invested in annihilating the Jews, knowing the promise of God over them? I think he was heavily invested. He was saying to her, turn around, turn around. What can you do? Look at yourself. Do you know how many men are in that room? Turn around. But the thing is, this story invites us to recognize that we serve one who is the majority in any room. Christ in me is the majority. There is never a room that I am in where I am the minority. And the same is true of you. There is not a single room. It is a physical impossibility if you are a follower of Jesus. Because he is inside of you and he is the majority. There is never a moment where he finds himself on the wrong end of a battle, where he finds himself outnumbered. And because he is in you, that is true of you. Sometimes people say to me, how can someone so, so small do the things that you're doing? It's because Christ in me is the majority. Do you know that I am not alone as I stand here? Do you know how many angels surround me right now? This has got nothing to do with me. It's got to do with him. And the same is true of you. There is never a moment in your life where you are backed into a corner. There is never a moment in your life where you are the one lone voice who needs to turn around. The enemy is invested in making you feel like that so that he will get you to step away from your destiny. But the enemy is a liar. Don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He is lying to you because when he says it is an unfair fight, there is an element of truth in there, but it's an unfair fight for him. He is in the minority. He is the one backed into the corner. He is the one who has already been defeated. Christ in you is your majority. There's that beautiful story in 2 Kings where Elisha and his servant are surrounded by thousands of soldiers. And Elisha's servant is freaking out. And Elisha is just fine. He's just chilling. And the servant, you can imagine in that moment, the servant's like, I knew this day would come. 
I knew the pressure would get too much for him. He's lost it. He's just totally lost it. His mind is broken. The stress has got to him. And Elisha's just standing there. And eventually he has mercy on the servant. And he says, God, open his eyes. Yes, there are thousands of humans coming against them. But there are tens of thousands of angels, fiery chariots all around. They are never the minority. Christ in you means you are always the majority. Always the majority. The enemy is playing a game of spiritual chicken with you. He is coming at you head on betting that you will move first. He has got nothing but bluffing. But his entire strategy, if he comes at you head on, he is betting that you will not be confident enough in the promises and the purposes of God and that you will give ground. What if you don't? Stand your ground. Do you know spiritual warfare in the Bible is not about you going to the high places and finding some, I don't know, tearing down things all over the place. Spiritual warfare in the Bible is defined with one word that is found repeatedly in Ephesians 6. And that word is not run around like a headless chicken. That word is stand. Stand. The ground is given. The promise is established. You don't need to go fighting for it, carving out territory. It's already given. That's a colossal waste of time. Stand on what has been given. Meet the one who is creator, not cleaner, who defies our origins, who is the majority, who uses silence as an invitation. See, in this story, it's really interesting in Esther chapter 4, Esther says to Mordecai, one of the reasons that she's not wanting to go to the king, she says, the king has not summoned me in many months. What she's saying is, there's silence from the throne room and I'm scared to lean in. Many of us as believers inevitably will go through seasons where we feel like God has gone silent. The question is, what do you believe in the silence? There's this profound story. It's one of my favorite encounters in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 15, where Jesus is with his disciples and he travels to Canaanite territory. He travels there for one encounter. We're told at the beginning of the story, he travels there, he meets somebody. Once he's met that person, he travels out of Canaanite territory. He's there for one person alone, and it's a Canaanite woman who comes to him. She thinks she's finding him. Turns out all along he was finding her. But he goes to that territory with his disciples, and she finds him, and she is begging and pleading for the life of her daughter who is oppressed by a demon. And she's saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Can you imagine that level of desperation? Some of you can because you've lived it, where you're watching your child and their broken body and you are begging and pleading, have mercy on me. And the story is an unusual one because Jesus does something that he doesn't do anywhere else. He says nothing at all. 
Now, if you don't read the story correctly, you'll misunderstand his heart. But if you, you figure out he went there for this woman, then we don't interpret the silence as callous, uncaring, or unfeeling. We understand he is motivated towards this woman. So what is he doing? Well, what happens next tells us what he's doing. Because you know what? Disciples are so good at filling the silence with their theology. This is important for us to understand in a world where there is occasional silence. Because what comes out of us will really communicate what we believe about God. In that silence, his disciples come out with their truest beliefs, which is send her away. She's inconvenient. What's she doing? This dirty Canaanite woman. Send her away. And Jesus ups the stakes in that moment. And he begins to speak to this woman who Jews would call a dog. That is a regular term that was used for Gentiles. He speaks to her and he says, it's not, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. What, what's, wow, how offensive. What's he doing? But if you understand his heart, you might then notice the twinkle in his eye. Because what he's really doing is posing it as a question. What he's really doing is saying to her, isn't it so? What he's really doing is saying to the disciples, isn't it so? He's allowed his silence to fill the space. He's allowing their truest beliefs to come out of them. And you can imagine the disciples being like, oh yeah, Jesus, good one. You tell her. How dare she come after what's ours? As if there's not enough to go round. You know what? Jesus believes of this woman. It's his vote of confidence in her because he's drawing out the gold that is actually in her. And in that moment where she could have been offended at the silent and turned around, in that moment where she could have been offended at the seeming circumstantial evidence that his heart is not towards her and she could have turned around, in that moment she does something radically audacious in faith and she leans in and she says, fine, you want to use the term dog? I'm okay with that because even the dogs have the crumbs that the children have left. She leans in. She recognizes his invitation So many of us allow our circumstances to grow offense against God in our hearts when God was using those moments mostly to expose our deepest beliefs about him. Because the thing is, what drives your decisions is not the spirituality that is skin deep in us. It's actually the truest beliefs in us that many of us are unaware of. And when God is silent, he is giving us the gift of allowing to come to the surface things that we are unaware of that are in fact the truest beliefs we have about God. When he is silent, if my first belief is he's had enough of me, that's in fact the truest belief that I have about him. When he is silent, if what comes out of me is he's angry with me, he's punishing with me, he no longer wants to speak to me, that's actually really when it's boiled down the thing that I most believe about God. The silence is a gift. 
It is an invitation. There is no other context in our lives where we will have our truest beliefs exposed to ourselves. He is a God who uses silence as an invitation. And how you react to the silence will expose what you actually believe. But when he brings it to the surface, he does it not to shame you, but he does it to heal you. To allow in that moment for that belief to come out of you so that you can go, wait, that's not true. Where did that come from? You know, that was in you the whole time. He's just allowed it to come out of you because in the light it can be healed. Esther invites us to meet the one who is joy and feasting. You know, Vashti and Esther do exactly the same thing. They both defy the king and the custom. It's just that Esther is wiser than Vashti is. I want to tell you, joy and feasting is the best context for breakthrough. If you need breakthrough, joy and feasting is where it is to be found because we serve a king who resides in joy and feasting. You know, when we break bread with one another, we drink the wine, we take the bread or drink the grape juice, take the bread. Really, it is, it is a table of joy that we come to because he's not on the cross anymore. Sometimes we behave like we're at a wake. But it is, in fact, a wedding banquet. We're taking bread and wine, celebrating what is an empty tomb. Of course, we take with reverence, but we need to take with joy. If not, we've not understood what we are remembering. Psalm 23 says, he prepares a table for me. It's one of the reasons we called our church the table. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. I want to tell you, when you are surrounded by enemies, many of us, our go-to is intensity, is depression, is like some kind of super spiritual warfare. You know what Jesus is doing? He's saying, sit down and eat. (laughs) He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Nehemiah 8 says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. In a battle, you need strength. And for the Christian, that's found in joy. I want to talk a little bit about intercession and prayer. I I love praying. I believe in the value of intercession. But I've seen that the enemy, if he cannot get us to um, denounce our faith, to walk away from following Jesus, he he has a different tactic, which is to uh, draw Christians into doing seemingly spiritual things that are, in fact, entirely ineffective. Because as long as he can waste your time, then he will derail you from the kingdom business that you're actually made for. And one of the areas that he does 
this in is in the area of intercession. Uh, And I just want to, if you're an intercessor, please forgive me. I am not coming against you at all. God bless you in your intercession. But bear with me for a second. Once in a while, you meet intercessors who carry intensity and depression as if it it is marker of their spirituality. And you'll meet these people. You can recognize them because when they speak to you, they drop their volume a little bit and their voices go really low. And they say, I am an intercessor. And they're saying that so that you know it's really serious. And then when you ask them what they're praying about, they'll say, no, 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 it's too dark. It's too dark. I can't tell you it's too dark. I have been in weeping and travail for three days. I have not been able to eat it. It's very dark. I can't, right? Everything is intense and depressed. If our prayers are depressing us, I want to suggest we need to stop praying. Because our prayers are ineffective. Why are you wasting your time doing something that cannot bear fruit? You've abandoned your weapons in the middle of a battlefield. It is better for you to sidestep and get out of that battle. To pray without joy is ineffective. If you're praying for your city and the problems of your city are causing you so much depression that the majority of your prayers are just intense and hopeless, you will not bear fruit. Joy and feasting is the context of kingdom breakthrough. Now, I'm not saying anything against fasting. I believe in the value of fasting. But if your fasting is not attached to joy, don't do it. It's an unbiblical form of fasting. Can I tell you a quick story? Years ago, when Julian and I got married, about 10 years ago, the week before our wedding, his parents had flown over from South Africa. We were living in the UK. His mom got inexplicably sick. She was taken to the hospital The week before our wedding, Julian didn't tell me, but he'd actually had a dream that his mom would die on our wedding day. Things just went from bad to worse the week before our wedding. She eventually got induced into a coma. The doctors didn't know what was going on. There was an infection they couldn't find or identify. They thought it was an infection that was destroying her body. Her kidneys went into failure. Everything began shutting down. The night before our wedding, the doctors phoned Julian to say, come, your mom is going to die tonight. Come and say goodbye to her. The morning of our wedding, I phoned him up, literally to find out, did she die? Are we getting married? His mom was still in a coma. She was still alive. We decided to go ahead with the wedding. His mom, obviously, in the hospital. We had to convince his dad. How do you have that conversation with your dad? Please, can you come and be with me at my wedding? But you might miss your wife dying. His dad came to our wedding. There was so much grief. It was so difficult. Honestly, it was just chaos. Both of us just totally numb inside except for the ceremony when the joy of the Lord broke out in a way I have never seen in any wedding before or since literally people in the congregation bursting out laughing at inopportune moments it's a wedding it's elegant it's beautiful people are just laughing raucously 
our minister changed his what he his address last minute because he felt the spirit say to him preach on feasting so he began to preach on feasting we decided as the first thing that we wanted to do as husband and wife was to break bread together so as our wonderful anglican friend was marrying us and praying over us and sharing bread and wine with us the joy of the lord hit me so hard that i began shaking uncontrollably now i want you to understand that i don't mind that ordinarily except when you're in a wedding dress and you're desperately trying to look beautiful you're kind of having a conversation with Jesus of not now. (laughs) Julian had to hold me up. The power and presence of joy tangible in the room. The rest of the wedding honestly was a blur. I can't tell you very much about that day at all, except for the ceremony. The week after that, the couple of weeks, we literally phoned it in every day on our honeymoon, every day expecting she's gone. Jesus kept her. She actually lived for years. She passed away a couple of years ago, but she lived for years after that time. But after the wedding, we had to do some processing. Like, what on earth happened? Three months after our wedding, we were at a conference in a church called Bethel in California. We were at a, uh, a dinner. Uh, the conference delegates were all in a restaurant, uh, in a hotel having dinner. It's very respectable. Someone walks past me, puts their hands on me. And joy hits me so hard that in the middle of my meal, I start howling with laughter. Now, I want to tell you, this wasn't a sweet giggle. There was nothing attractive about it. I was yelling in a room of people calmly eating their dinner. And before you think I'm crazy, I just want to say as a caveat, I'm a a medically trained professional. I'm an emergency room doctor. Before I went into full-time vocational ministry, I practiced medicine as a physician in the hospital for a few years. Okay. So I just want to say that so you don't think I'm just a crazy kind of person. And um, I'm howling with laughter. Everyone else is still eating. For the entire mealtime, I'm howling with laughter. Howling so hard that tears are streaming down my face and my stomach hurts. I can't walk to the car to go to the meeting. So Julian has to carry me to the car. I continue howling with laughter. He carries me inside the meeting. I continue to howl with laughter. Uh, There are some very unkind prayer team at the front of the door when they're greeting people who look at me and say, more Lord, as I enter into that meeting. Why would you do that to somebody? I'm dying. I am crying with laughter. Julian, my loving husband, abandons me, goes and finds the seats, pretends he doesn't even know me. I'm crawling at the back of the room. I literally am incapacitated with laughter. And after having a freak out and for about an hour wrestling with the Lord to make him stop it, finally lean into, okay, God, what on earth are you doing? And he says to me, you've been facing a battle and you didn't know what to do. I am training you in warfare. Next time you find yourself in a battle, this is what you do. You find your joy in me until you can laugh at the lies of the enemy. I want to tell you, some of you have been facing a battle 
and you have not known what to do. I want to remind you, it is the joy of the Lord that is your strength. It is not easy. About a year later, we were losing our first baby in the midst of miscarrying, in the midst of that warfare. I remembered what the Lord had taught me. And I wrote down just how hopeless the situation was on a piece of paper. I stood on that piece of paper. I put worship music on. And it took me hours. But in the end, I found the joy of the Lord. And that verse that he turns ashes into beauty in our hearts became true for me in a tangible way that day. I want to tell you what I say to you is not theoretical. It is a journey that I have walked. The joy of the Lord is your strength and joy and feasting is the best context for breakthrough. The last one. We're going to land in a minute. I know I've kept you longer than normal. Last one is that... He invites us to meet the one who is kinder than we imagine. In this story, Esther goes to a king expecting an execution order. That is what she culturally deserves. He extends favor to her. The enemy is heavily invested in making you and I believe that God is difficult to please. That even for the believer, everything that you do, if it is a step out of line, he is going to punish you for it. The enemy is a liar. I want to tell you that your father is incredibly easy to please. I want to tell you that when you step out in faith, whether it goes right or wrong, his face is beaming towards you. Years ago, I learned that when I preach whether it goes right or wrong, whether a crowd is impressed or not, whether deliverance happens or not, all of that is secondary. I have learned over the years to, before I stand on a platform, find the smiling face of my father. And whatever else happens in the room, I know he is delighted in me. I want to tell you, your father is easy to please. Hebrews 11 tells us that it is faith that pleases him, not performance. Whether you get it right or wrong is not what he's grading you on. He is not grading you at all. Let's stand together. There is so much more that can be said, but I want to leave us with the verse from Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life. I want to invite you to say that over yourself even now. Surely, not maybe, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life. I have a seven and a six-year-old at home. They do not leave me alone. When I get home, they will follow me everywhere in that house. There is nowhere I can run, nowhere I can hide. No locked door will deter them. Little Evangeline and little Ezekiel will be right next to me. I want to tell you, goodness and mercy are hunting you down in the very same way. There is nowhere that you can go, nowhere you can hide. No locked door will deter him. He will flank you with goodness and mercy all of the days of our lives. Jesus, we love you. We honor you. I thank you that you make us new. I thank you that you defy the places that we've come from and what culture would say over us. I thank you that you are our majority. I thank you 
that you deposit joy in us in battle times. And I thank you that right now you are smiling over us. Come and minister to us. Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us. There are so many opportunities to grow, connect, and be encouraged. To learn more, visit ctfraleigh.com and follow us on social media. Thank you so much for being part of the family. We are so thankful for you.